Hello and welcome to the Better Than I Found It podcast. I'm the men's golf coach at Baylor University, Mike McGraw, and your host today. My guest today is former two-time NCAA championship coach, Josh Gregory. Josh and I have a good conversation and we discuss a myriad of subjects about player development techniques that he uses and other things that he does that help his players succeed. As you'll hear in the interview, he's quite frankly an excellent instructor. Josh currently works with several PGA Tour professionals and talks about some of those players that he works with, but he also talks about a painful time in his career when he lost his job at SMU. He's very candid about the mistakes he made at the time, but also open about the lessons that he learned and how that experience propelled him to where he is today. Let's get right to the interview. Josh Gregory, welcome to the Better Than I Found It podcast today. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Coach. Uh, I always enjoy being with you. Absolutely. Well, I, I figured we'd, we're going to talk a lot about instruction today but and kind of the way you teach and, and, and things like that. And just I'm very interested in hearing it because I know you're working with a lot of players that are getting a lot of benefit. But So I'm interested in that because I think I'll learn a bunch. But before we go there, let's just go through your background, just kind of get, you know, where you grew up, how you got into golf, your junior golf career, how you got to SMU as a player, just some of that information. So people out, the average person to know a little more. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, only child. Uh, my dad was was a, a great player, still is a good player. He was uh, probably a plus, a plus two or so at his best. Um, never really had any golf lessons, started swinging a club when I was about two years of age and um, played, played forever, played just as much baseball as I did, as, as I did, uh, golf, played baseball throughout high school, but, um, was very fortunate. Uh, I, I met, uh, I met Andy Bean back in 1979 when I was four years old at, at the old Danny Thomas, uh, classic, which is now the FedEx, which now is the world golf championship event. And that's who I met. And that's who I, um, he befriended me and we stayed in touch for the next probably 15 years or so. And he got me my first set of old, old Wilson staff blades, which are some of the purest irons uh, ever made. But um, so I started as a young kid, started competing in tournaments at eight, eight, nine, 10 years of age and um, played throughout high school. Went to a went to an all boys Catholic high school uh, called Christian Brothers High School, which learned a lot of a lot of my discipline, a lot of education and, and a lot of, uh, you know, the sports were, were great as well. And so. Uh, I was very, very fortunate um, at that time to have two parents to pretty much uh, give me every opportunity to, to to play and to get better. And their kind of general rule was, uh, you, you know, I was thankful. You don't you don't have to you don't have to work unless as long as long as you can earn a scholarship and as long as you can uh, do, do the right things in the classroom and on the baseball field and golf course. So um, fortunate enough to have a good high school career. I, wa- I wasn't a stud by any stretch. I was kind of a late bloomer. I was probably one year away from really being recruited by a lot of good places. And we didn't, you know, unlike now, I mean, I'm, parents are so parents and kids are so much more educated on this process. We didn't know a thing about what I was doing. Um, so I had a few good o- opportunities. Um, one was uh, to go, to go play at Vanderbilt under Mason Rudolph, which was a wonderful opportunity. Um, one was to go play, um, uh, play for coach Warren at East Tennessee state. 
Um, and then the other kind of came out of the blue. I was, I was fortunate enough to win our high school state championship in 1992 and SMU coach Barry Rodenhaver was there who knew a good friend of ours from Nashville and came up to watch me play and was, was fortunate enough to win. And, and I didn't know anything about SMU other than the death penalty, <laughs> to be quite honest. So mm-hmm. I didn't know what, anything about him. And this was only post, I guess, four years removed, uh, from the, from the death penalty. So went and took a visit and went to SMU and kind of thought I'd died and gone to heaven because here I am a very middle-class kid, very, and you, you show up on that campus and you go, wow, this is uh, this is pretty special. So, um, was fortunate enough to get a great scholarship there. Otherwise, never could have afforded it. And during that summer, uh, Hank Haney took over as coach. And so um, had the had the privilege of playing for him for, for four years. And, and that really kind of, I guess, piqued my interest into learning more about the golf swing, learning more about technique, learning more about how to play, compete, um, coaching, et cetera, because – um, you know, whether we agree 100% of his principles of, of necessarily what he taught, there's no doubt I, I, I've never seen a man work that hard. I mean, he was balancing a full-time professional career, teach, teaching pros and teaching, you know, lessons a day as well as trying to coach us. And so learned a ton from him about work ethic, discipline, how to practice. Um, he was very good. I mean, I, I, I candidly, Hank, Hank and I have gotten way closer over the years, and I, I didn't appreciate it at the time because he was hard on us. He was tough. I mean, I know you've been around some tough, some tough ones as well, and he was brutal. I mean, we were uh, we had practice every Saturday and Sunday morning at 8 a.m. and uh, and 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 the way we got around the four hour rule was we practiced from eight to nine, ten to eleven, one to two, and four to five. <laughs> That's when we were required to be there. But practice facility was 30 minutes away. Where else are we going to go? So next thing you know, those those Saturdays and Sundays are 10 hour days. But uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I mean, looking back on it, we sure didn't really enjoy it all the time. And there were many times when we'd play poorly at a tournament and we'd go, uh, go to find a lighted driving range after a 36 hole day. So, uh, you know what, it's, it, it taught me my work ethic. It taught me, um, you know, a lot of what to do and a lot of some of what not to do, to be candid. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. You should say that. I mean, Hank obviously coached for several years, but he coached, he was like you, he was a, college coach and an instructor. And that's kind of an unusual, most of the time that doesn't happen. So, uh, but you played at SMU, had a great career. Everything was yeah. great there. How did you get into coaching? How did that come about? Well, I, I played for about a little over two years professionally. Um, went up to Canada for a bit, uh, played on the Hooters tour, played on Tar Hill tour, just various mini tours. Um, you know, never really had the success that I, that I looking back on, I, th- I think I could have had, had, had I, played the way I coached. I unfortunately played searching for, for, for perfection, searching for perfect technique. You know, I, I was, I was the guy that would, you know, hit balls. I would show up two hours before my tee time practice, go, go play. And by the 15th hole, I couldn't wait to get out and get to the driving range to have my camcorder hooked up and go, go study the golf swing. And then I would go in the hotel room at night, rehearsing positions, positions, positions. And I was searching for something I already had. And I had a plenty good enough golf swing, but I forgot a little bit about how to play the game. Um, so I just was a kind of a, I was a guy that either make the cut by one or two or miss the cut by one or two. I just, just wasn't quite good enough. I wasn't quite, um, candidly, wasn't quite selfish enough. Uh, you have to be tough and you have to be really into yourself and you really into your own time and not be afraid to, to say no and, and, and love that grind of just being by yourself. And that wasn't really necessarily you know what I was great at and so I learned early on after a couple of years and 
thankfully I probably didn't have all the money in the world to keep doing it. I had some great sponsors, including my family. Um, but had I had, had I had more money, I probably would have kept doing it, which might've been <laughs> the worst thing ever. Uh, but I realized I just, I just can't believe it. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough and, and I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And the only other thing I'll never forget, I, I played in my last event um, in Wilmington, North Carolina in a Hooters tour event. And I just said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Um, and the only thing I knew that I wanted to do was coach. And, and I loved my college golf experience. I thought it was something that I could be good at. I thought it was something that I would love to get back and I could take my good and bad experiences from, from college and good and bad experiences from trying to play and help these young, young players out. And, but I had no clue how to get into it. I had zero clue at this time in 19, I guess it was 1999, um, graduated from SMU in 97, played for two years, 1999. I didn't know a thing about what to do. And I remember going on the old NCA portal to, uh, to find out what jobs were open. And at, and at that time there was three jobs open, uh, Vanderbilt, uh, when Preston fall was the coach. Uh, Coach Fields at, at Texas, I think, was looking for an assistant, uh, and he didn't know when that was going to happen. Press didn't really know when it was going to happen. And then at, in, at NC State, at North Carolina State, Coach Coach Sykes on the men's side and uh, Paige, Paige Marshall on the women's side, they were looking for a men's and women's assistant coach. And so they were looking – that was the one that was looking to hire the fastest. And I didn't know a thing about either one of them and was fortunate enough to go up there and didn't, didn't know what I was doing. And, and somehow my first job ever job interview of my life um, was able to get it. And, and, and I owe everything to the both of them to, to get me started because without them taking a chance on a 24 year old kid who didn't really know what to do, although I had a lot of ideas and, and, and but uh, I'm very, very appreciative uh, for them. And I learned so much from coach Sykes. He's the best. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's um, was a true mentor and, and taught me that, the number one thing as a coach you do is you take care of your players first. It all it isn't all about X's and O's and positions. It's it's about taking care of them and and making sure they're loved and everything else will fall into place. Well, I love that, and I really did always respect uh, Richard. And you know his career spanned a long, long time. He oh, coached gosh, yeah. for a long time and had success pretty much all the way through. So that was great. That was your first experience, and then I guess you get to go straight from there to Augusta State, correct? Yeah, I was there for a couple of years and mainly we had just started back the the women's program. And, and so I, I was about 80, 80 to 85 percent uh, coaching women's golf, which is honestly was the best thing that ever happened to me because we started up a program and we we had uh, six girls on the team that, you know, honestly weren't weren't great. We just we pretty much just had to take what we could get. And then I had to go out and I was doing all the recruiting, most of the coaching. And I and we, we built a in our second year, we went all the way up to around 35th in the country, which was pretty great playing five freshmen and just with a startup program. But it gave me experiences that I wasn't really prepared for, but I had to figure it out. And so I had the best of both worlds. I had learning under my mentor and coach Sykes. And then I had the opportunity to be handed a lot of duties that I wasn't really ready for. And I had to figure it out with my own mistakes and go in there with no fear and recruit and try to recruit against North Carolina and Wake Forest and Duke and all these great programs. But I was also allowed to do a lot of coaching. And on the women's side, you do a lot more coaching. There's no doubt about it. And they and listen, I, too. They, they listen, listen. They listen a lot better. There's no, And I really enjoyed it. And so I honestly thought I was going to be a women's coach. I really thought that was kind of where my fit would be. I thought, hey, man, I could really do this. I know I can recruit. I'm going to learn how to make players better. Let's just keep going with it. And um, kind of a funny story. I'll never, never forget. I interviewed. 
I remember the Augusta State job came open, and Coach Sykes was was good friends with Henry Thomas. And I don't know if you know Henry Thomas well, and he was a, the old supporter around Coach Sewell forever mm-hmm. yep. at, at Augusta State. Just a wonderful, wonderful man who loved that program more than anybody. And I didn't think I had a chance in heck at getting the job. Jay had done a phenomenal job there. They had been a top 10 program the last couple of years. And I'm thinking they're not going to take a chance on an assistant coach. It's only been there for two years. And um, I had gone to just interview for the head women's coaching job at UNC Wilmington. And I didn't get it. <laughs> and I'll never forget thinking, all right, this is, I really thought I should, I thought I could get that job. But how in the heck am I going to get the job at Augusta state? Um, and I owe two people the utmost, thank you for this because they, they helped out dramatically coach Sykes obviously and then buddy Alexander they called they called buddy uh, I believe to talk about his assistant at the time and to ask him just some any anybody out there that he knew that he thought would be a good fit at Augusta State and he said hey there's this guy at NC State that really works hard that's done a good job that, that's really I really respect I think you ought to talk to him and coming from arguably one of the top top coaches in the country if not the best at the country definitely top two or three that meant the world to Augusta State, and that kind of got me in the door at least for an interview. And somehow, at uh, at, at twenty six, almost twenty seven, I was able to fool I was able to fool them and uh, trick them and trick them into hiring me. And um, I can't thank uh, Augusta State enough because that sure uh, gave me the opportunity. Well, I I wouldn't say you fooled them. I mean, you you <laughs> did take over a pretty good program. Jay left you in in a good space. Oh yeah. But several years later, you won two national championships, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember both quite Sorry. well. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I think that's great. So let's let's uh, let's talk briefly about those national championships. Yeah. Um, I had the best team in the country in 2010, and we were playing beautifully and playing wonderfully, and and we met you guys in the finals of match play at, at the honors course, and you guys whipped us. Well, it it, it was one of those things. I mean, I, I hate to bring this up, but you probably have about five national championships if it's stroke play, but. Uh, you know what the, the the beauty of it turning into that is, is is the best team doesn't always win in sports in the World Series, the uh, NBA Finals, the uh, you know, NFL, wh- whatever it may be. And and so we were we were a great team. We were ranked we were. I think, the first first year when we won. I think we were ranked sixth. The second year we were ranked fourth. But we weren't the best team. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. Now we may. I always thought we had our our one and two, and and Hendrick Norlander and Patrick Reed could match up with anybody in the country. And I thought from three to seven, we were as deep as anybody, anybody in the country as well. And so I, I had kids that, that, that had that chip on their shoulder. I had kids that, that loved to compete. They weren't heavily recruited. Um, they wanted to beat somebody. They thought Augusta state was the same as Arizona state, same initials. And so they, they just wanted to win and wanted to beat somebody. And so I, I knew that once we could ever get into, you know, the hardest part is qualifying for match play. It's tough. It's very tough, but I knew once we got into match play, we would be a very tough out because we didn't really have a weak link. We had kids that that hated losing more than they loved winning, uh, and I had two studs. I had two studs that are probably going to get you – they're going to be hard to beat in match play. Yeah. Patrick, Patrick's as good as I've ever seen in match play. He went he went 6-0, and but and Hendrick, I think, went 4-2 and two in those two years, but candidly won those. Because of our three, four, and five guys, I had four and five guys that just constantly went out and won matches. Yeah, I look back on that, and people would say, how could you lose to Augusta State? You had the best team. Well, were you kidding me? These guys were some <laughs> of the toughest competitors yeah. I think I'd ever seen. And I think that's the the beauty about of match play is it brings competitiveness right yeah. to the forefront. Well, it, it brings competitiveness. 
it's it's made college golf relevant to be to be honest it has uh, it's, it's getting more exposure now than it ever has i think it's it's made athletic directors realize uh more and more the the importance of it it's now on tv all these things just weren't done before and so i obviously i have an extreme bias to it because uh, we would have we would have finished fifth or sixth in stroke play both times but you know what that wasn't the way the format was and all, all I, my whole message to my players each day was just let's just get a tea time let's have a tea time for the next day and you know I'll, I'll never forget and i'm going to toot your own horn a little bit but our but our first national championship at, at the honors course i mean you did some coach that i'll never forget i mean uh, taylor floyd was was extremely extremely ill and he got food poisoning and he was up all night and and honestly the doctor kind of left it up to the two of us or myself and taylor whether he was even going to play or not and and I won't use the exact words Taylor said, but he pretty much said, I'll crawl around this golf course if I have to. I'm not sitting out. And that's that's the kind of kids we have. And I'll never forget you allowed that. I think he was supposed to go out in the first or second match. And you allowed him to go out in the last match to give him some time to get some IV and some fluid. And and, and it was it meant the world to me. And I can't ever thank you enough for that. And, he, and he's, he's never forgotten it as well. But that shows well, I, the I certainly what we did. I certainly didn't want a point right off the bat because you had a kid on an IV out in the parking lot in a van. I, I thought, no. I mean, and honestly, when when the matches were finally decided, I think Taylor and uh, and Trent Whitekiller were even on the 17th green. So he had played an amazing match, albeit he was very, very sick. And yeah, uh, but anyway, I didn't want that to happen. Well, that 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 speaks to your character and also our game. Our game that that it's it's a respect is something that I, I know I would have done the same in return. I hope everybody else everybody else would have done it, but who knows? But it was a, um, you know, I, I you, you dream of winning national championships. You, you I, I, um, I'm not going to say I expected it, but but that was. I was extremely competitive, still am very competitive. And, and I didn't think that just because we were at Augusta State, we couldn't win. And I carried that message on to our players. And so your job, my job is to make our players believe they're twice as good as they really are. Um, out, out really humble and inwardly cocky. And I never had that problem with Patrick. He was always outwardly <laughs> cocky. And he was twice as cocky on the outside as he was on the inside. He kind of missed the message there. But I guess that's what makes him one of the best 10 players in the world. But uh, anyway, it um, – it was something you, you dream of, but you still, when it happens, you're just how, how in the heck did it happen? And I appreciate it now, uh, 10 years removed, what, what we did in those two years, because looking back on it and, you know, looking at the fact that we were a $30,000 operating budget, we had three and a half scholarships. We had a heck of a facility. We had a heck of a home golf course in Forest Hills. We had great supporters, but you know, to me, that doesn't matter. To me, that was garbage. I would never let my players think that they they use that to build the chip on the shoulder. You yeah, know, just well, because we didn't have the, the the huge budgets and planes and whatever, that doesn't matter. That doesn't win you titles. Players, heart, character, grind, discipline, those are the things that, that win. Well, and, and winning those two national championships, you were able to get a really wonderful opportunity to go back and work at your alma mater in 2011 yeah. at SMU. Yeah, so, and, 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 you know, finish, finishing, I, I'll never forget, obviously – not to bring up a sensitive subject, but 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 beating you guys on your home course at Oklahoma State was something that was the closest I've ever been to, you know, feeling like a Ryder Cup moment. It was us against the world, and it was it was awesome. And I remember getting called a few names walking through the galleries there by, <laughs> by showing some emotion, and it was it was awesome. It was it's what it's what sports is all about. It was cool, and so you know it was it was such a cool moment to for us to win. Uh, I had four play, had all the players were leaving, and then I was going off immediately to SMU and. And, you know, I was, I had 
had two great opportunities at the time. I was deciding between going to University of North Carolina, which, which candidly was a was when I got into coaching, I wrote down five jobs. And that was one of my dream jobs because I thought this is just a place that had kind of underachieved a little bit, hadn't mm -hmm. really done that great in the last 10 or 15 years. And I thought, boy, what a, what a cool spot to be. It's Michael Jordan. It's Dean Smith. It's, it's the baby blue. It's all that. And, um, you know, I went back to my alma mater to, to talk to SMU and, and they were just kind of a, you know, it's kind of a middle of the road type type program. And, and, and you know, your, your heartstrings get pulled when you go back to your alma mater and you step back on that campus and you just go, wow, there, there's no reason why this program shouldn't be successful. And it's your alma mater when you can really speak from your heart and say, Hey, this place took a chance on me and gave me an opportunity that whether I deserved it or not, it, it gave me that it, it paved my way for what I was doing. And, and to go back and really speak from your heart and recruiting and want to give back to a place that gave me so much was, was, was a dream come true. And, um, you know, I was ultra competitive and wanted to rebuild fast. I mean, they, when I took over the team, we were, I think they were ranked around 60th in the country. Uh, and they had just lost Kelly Kraft, who was one of the top 10 players in the country. So we were essentially did, you know, didn't, didn't have a lot coming back. And, and my first year there at SMU was candidly probably my best coaching coaching year I've ever done. Uh, and, and I had, I turned, you know, helped turn around a program that, kids bought into a new theory. They bought into a new work ethic. They bought into everything. And I think we wound up ranked, you know, about 30th that year, 30th, 35th in the country. And we're literally one hole away from making the NCAA championship with five players who had averaged about 75 the previous year. And they all averaged between 72 and 73 and a half. And to me, that was, that's coaching. Hey, I mean, something we all, we all know that to coach, to coach Patrick Reed, to coach Hendrick Norlander, to coach Kevin Tway, Morgan Hoffman, all, all, all those players, Cooper Dossie now, and Ryan McGraw, all your, all your wonderful players that you've, that you've had, um, it's managing. And a lot of times it's, 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 it's psychological, and it's just getting them to the tee on time. <laughs> it's oh, telling yeah. them how good they are. And any coach that doesn't believe that is, is kidding themselves. But, but true coaching to me is turning a, turning a player that's, a, that's an average player into a pretty good player. And that was, that was exciting. And so we um, – I was super aggressive in college. I mean, in, in the recruiting there, because I wanted to turn it around fast. I, di I didn't like losing. I, you know, I probably felt some pressure with, you know, with this big salary and the big expectations and being in Dallas. And now I was in a, in a place where I could recruit the best in the country. And so now all of a sudden got Oklahoma State and Oklahoma and Texas and all these people throwing darts at you and try, trying to figure out how am I going to beat these guys. And, and I knew I had to go in early uh, to get them and offer big scholarships and do those things. And so we, we had some great recruiting classes. We had probably, you know, if they were to rank them, you know, top one, two, and three recruiting classes for about, you know, three years in a row lined up and had some studs coming in and was fortunate enough to get Bryson DeChambeau to come there and Austin Smotherman. And, and uh, you know, starting out there, Bryson gave me one of the greatest compliments I've ever received as a coach. He was – I'd never done this before. And right when I got the job, um, friends with the, my, my tailor-made friends and would help Bryson a little bit in his career. And they said, hey, there's this kid in California that – kind of being overlooked that nobody really knows about nobody really wants to take a chance on uh because he does single length clubs he's he's a little little bit different and i know and he was being recruited by ucla and stanford and washington some great places and oregon and i remember offering him a full scholarship over the phone i'd never seen him never 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 met him never whatever but i knew i needed to go and i had to try to get in early with the first offer and i said i'm flying out to the junior world to watch you play and i'm only only watching you play and, and here we go and about a month later, he committed, and, and I'll never forget. I asked him. I said, "Bryson, why did you choose? Why did you choose me? And why did you choose the SMU? I mean, we're we're no, nowhere near these other places." And 
really the coolest compliment ever. He simply said, Coach, you were the only one that was going to let me be me. Everybody else thought I had to change and that it couldn't work. And I'm thinking, well, you average 68 and you got a 4.0 in the classroom. I can coach that kind of kid. <laughs> That's not that hard. <laughs> but That's an tough. easy coaching job. That's an easy coaching job. He was tough and demanding, and, and uh, it made me a better coach, though, because I had to think outside the box. And as you well know, we learn way more from our players than they, they learn from us. I mean, I hope they learn a lot, but I can promise you I've learned just as much from every one of my players. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, we had a good run. We actually – my third year there, we rebuilt pretty fast and made it made it to the quarterfinals and, and lost to one of the best teams of all time in, in Alabama that year. Had them on the ropes, uh, almost beat them, and that was an extremely gratifying moment. Never thought we could get there um, that fast. And and then and then shortly after, I lost my job. Uh, candidly, I I, uh, I made some mistakes. I uh, was a little too aggressive. Did some text messaging. Um, gave gave some hats and gear away for when kids would commit. I mean, nothing that. Look, I I don't regret necessarily my intentions. I regret my mistakes, and I, mm-hmm. and I, and I wish I had it to do all over again. But my intentions were pure. They weren't trying to get ahead of the game, but at the same time, I broke rules, period. And I, I, I didn't I didn't what's that to cross the T's and dot your eyes as well as well as I should have. And and you know it was unfortunately a part of a major basketball investigation, and and it just kind of lumped in together. And and my world was ripped ripped out from underneath. Here I am, a two-time national chip, championship coach. Uh, I've got my dream job. Things are going in the right direction. I'm confident we're going to win national championships at, at, at SMU. And, you know, a month later, it's gone. I, I'm, I'm fired. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And looking back on it, um, y- y- you know what? The big One of the biggest things I ever learned from, from that time is, is I could – I remember ca- talking to you on the phone, Coach, and, and you, you, you went through a similar experience. Uh, at, at, for Oklahoma State, and, and, and you, you told me the best advice ever is just, you can choose to feel sorry for yourself, but nobody else does. <laughs> and you can choose to move on. You can choose to figure out what's going to work, or you can continue to sit there and feel sorry for yourself. And, and I did for a while. I felt very sorry for myself and self-pity and thinking this is not fair. You know, I, I didn't do anything that bad. You know, other coaches have gotten less. But whatever those feelings of self-pity were, but at the end of the day, if I don't make mistakes, I have a job. I made mistakes. So don't do that. You're just fine. And so it took me a while to kind of, to kind of get out of that, that mode of self-sorry and self-pity. And then, and then I just, I, I finally kind of woke up one day and said, it's time. I said, I, I, I know, you know, my, my job, whether deserved or not, I cost myself my job. So therefore it was taken away from me. Well, they can't take away my passion and they can't take away my ability. I knew I could coach. I sure didn't know I could be coaching seven or eight of the best players in the world. I didn't, I didn't dream of it going this route, but I knew I could coach. I knew I could make people better. And I knew I was good at that. And that was my passion. And that was what I loved. And so from that day on, it's funny. One of the, one of the first players I ever met was, was Mark Reppy, Mark, Mark Reppy and, and his father. We, we yep. met at Brook at Brookhaven and he was honestly one of the first to take a chance on me to help develop his son. And, and I, I, it's really proud. You know, I don't coach him anymore, but I still care for him dearly. And, and to see him growing and developing as a player is awesome. Uh, but he and his family were the first to take a chance on me in that in that in that area. And uh, I remember Rod. I was here and brand new at Baylor, and Rod Reppy called me and asked me, what, "What do you think about Mark? You know, working with Josh?" And I said, "I I know this. Josh's players get better when they so yes, go do it." And anyway, you helped him a lot, a great deal. But I think. 
the main thing that could be taken from this was, yeah, you made some mistakes, yeah, uh, but you owned it and said, yes, mm -hmm. I made mistakes. I'm yeah. going to move on. And all I encouraged you to do was just the next time you get an opportunity, don't make those same mistakes. And so exactly. It, it, and I and I believed at that time that I would get back into college coaching. You know, unfortunately, I was given a five year show cause penalty, which was just really rocked my world. Thing. I'm thinking, all right, I'll, I'll get back in a year or two. And I'll be OK. But five years is a long time. Uh, so I didn't have a choice. Uh, and, and, and looking back, uh, blessing in disguise, to be honest. I mean, I, I never dreamed of winning two national championships. I never uh, dreamed of coaching the best players in the world. And maybe it gave me the opportunity to say, hey, I can go do this at another level. I'll never call it a higher level. Yes, coaching players on, on the PGA Tour is the, is, the, is the highest level, but it's still coaching. I, coaching I, I, is I, coaching. I coach Patrick Creed and I coach Kelly Craft and I, and I coach Doc Redman this the same exact way is that I, that I coach a, a Tommy Morrison who, who's, who's, a great, who's a great junior player or a 12-year-old kid who's just starting the game. It's coaching. It's figuring you know, out how to make them work. The, the job you did at North Carolina State as an assistant women's coach, that's coaching. And people yes. forget that. It's, it's like, well, they weren't very good players. Well, it doesn't matter. They got yeah. better with yeah. the time they spent with me. And, that's, and they were left better than they were <laughs> when I first met them. So that's kind of what you're looking for, whether that's, it's Patrick Reed or you know, a, a, a 12 handicap. Right. And, and so the, you know, I did a podcast recently where they asked me, how do you, how do you define success? And I, I look back at, at the player. If I just quantify it to the players that I have on, on the, on the PGA tour, seven of my eight players that, that, that I help in some capacity, whether it's full swing, full game, everything, or whether it's just short game in practice, all of them are short game in practice, but seven of those eight made it to the top 75 last year in the FedEx. And candidly, only Patrick Reed's really the only pure stud of that group. A lot of them are just very good players that are up and coming that just continue to get better. And hopefully we will get them to East Lake. They will get to East Lake. They will contend in majors. They will do all those things. But that to me is what I'm most prideful about, as you said, is players get better. They get better under some of the practice beliefs, the ideas that we have. And that's um, as dumb as it may sound, as cliche as it may sound, if you get a little better each day, it's hard to fail. Yeah, it's that 1%. Just keep getting a 1% better, 1% better in all areas. Eventually, that adds up into something pretty significant, eventually. Right. Correct. And and so I kind of formulated my beliefs. I, I'm a big believer in writing things down, and, and I know you do that as well. And, and I, I wrote a lot of things down, almost kind of what my – if I had it to do all over again as a player, if I had it to do all over again as a coach, how how would I do it? And, you know, I, I kind of thought of, all right, there's there's – let's just break golf down to the simplest form take away the mental side but the four there's four physical areas of the game there's full swing there's chipping pitching and bucker short game there's putting and there's distance wedges that's pretty much it mm -hmm. yes you have fairway bunkers yes you have punch outs you have different but for the most part those are your four physical areas of the game and i and i look back on it and go how many days did i ever spend equal time in those areas of the game never mm -hmm. never, never ever ever Every time I meet with a tour player and they want to know what I do, every time I meet with a junior and a family and they, and they want to know what I do, that's what I talk about. And I ask them this question. And unless somebody's lying, they've never done that. Well, why wouldn't you? Yes, stats are going to show that that probably total driving uh, and putting are going to be the two most two most important stats. And then right behind that is strokes gained approach. Strokes gained approach to green usually usually leads to the winner. But having said that, why would we want to have a weakness? So my goal is that, hey, 
very rarely are all four areas of those games going to click in a day. When that happens, you shoot 65. But if we can get two or four, two out of the four of those doing pretty well, we're all, it's going to make our bad rounds better and our good rounds great. And then within those areas, you've got your technical work, you've got your random practice, and then you've got your competitive work. Well, I know for a fact I spent way too much time in technique in every area. We both know our best players are the ones that we would see going over and having chipping contests with their teammates, and then they would go to the first tee and go play. Our players that didn't really develop as well spent way too much on that time with you know in the V1 room or looking on swing cattle, so looking on things that, yes, hey, there is a great need for those. There is a need and there's a time and place for those. But in my mind, that's not genuinely making players better. And I was shocked in, in going out and, 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 you know, in my first couple, you know, Patrick Reed, um, Patrick Reed hired me in 2000, uh, 2015. Uh, it, it, this really defined my, my career of, of what the niche was, what was needed out on tour and what I needed to do for players. Uh, he called me in, end of 2015 he had gone 18 straight events without a top 10 on the tour so he, he thinks he's playing the worst golf of his life he's still doing okay um so i go up to, he calls me to come up to boston to work with him for the first playoff event we worked for four days straight sunday sunday through wednesday before the tournament starts on thursday going through all these kind of beliefs that i'd written down and how to practice and equal time in each areas and all this stuff and he, and he goes out and finishes fourth and so I think I'm the greatest coach in the world. He thinks I'm the greatest coach in the world. I'm going, this stuff's easy. What are these guys doing? <laughs> far, far from the truth. Far from the truth. But anyway, um, we show up the, the, on Monday, the next week in Chicago at Conway Farms. Typical Patrick style. We finish on Sunday night. He's ready to go at it Monday morning at 8 o'clock and get back after it. And, and so we meet, and I look at him on the putting green, and, and I, won't, I won't use the word that he said, but, he, but I simply said, uh, hey, Patrick, uh, what do you want to do today? And he looked at me in a pretty harsh tone and, and said, Coach, I didn't hire, hire you for that reason. I hired you to show me the way I swing the club, which scared me to death. But at the same time, it was the ultimate compliment. He trusted in me to make him better. He trusted in me to, as a Coach K would show up at a basketball practice, the players show up. They don't really know what they're doing that day, but he runs them through a practice. Same with Patrick. I'll figure out how to swing the club. I'll figure out how to do what you tell me to do, but I need somebody to show me the way to how to get better. And that really defined my role for what I do now. Yes, there is a lot of technical components to what I do, especially in the short game and some in the full swing. But for the most part, it's structure. It's a practice plan. It's a syllabus that all my players have that, hey, I know they're going to follow it much more closely when they're with me. When they're on their own, they're not going to follow it as closely. Mm -hmm. But if they can follow it 50% of that, it's a heck of a lot better than what they were doing before. And that's where I see, I hate to call it a business, but it is. It's coaching. It's, co it's still coaching. But that's where the business has kind of continued to grow because players keep getting better. And that's why I get interest from a lot of guys and a lot of juniors because it's, when asked what I do, I just kind of say I'm a hybrid. If you, need, if you need swing technique, I'm happy doing that. You know, all my guys in short game and, and, and practice, but this, the, the swing stuff and even the short game stuff where I believe we've gone backwards in teaching that we're teaching technique to hit shots as opposed to hitting shots to fix technique. Okay, I, before we move on, I want to discuss this concept. I didn't know you were going to say it that way, and I love it. Let's take that deeper right now. That Yeah, it, it's, it's so – let's face it. I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're a good player – 
or even a 10 handicap, for example. If I take you behind a tree and I tell you to hit a low hard hook around that, or I tell you to hit a low hard slice or high slice or high hook, all, all elite players can figure that out. Well, I know what that's going to translate to for the numbers on track man and stuff like that. I mean, if you're at if your path is zero on track man and we're trying to hit draws, well, you need to get it to three or four. Well, we have to overdo that to find the happy medium. We need to get that thing to six or seven to, to get it to three or four under the gun. But it's hitting shots. If I go out, I'll, I'll tell you a great story with Charles Howe. This is this is excellent. So we're uh, Charles. I've worked with Charles off and on for a while, but mainly with the short game and how to practice would never touch his full swing because I'm not smart enough to touch his full swing. <laughs> uh, he, he knows more about it. He, I told him recently, he was asking what he should do with, with his swing coach. I said, you should just hire yourself. There's nobody that knows any better, and it's about time you start owning your own golf swing. Uh, but we're at Napa one year, and he and his, his coach at that time, Dana Dawkins, they were working on trying to get his numbers to like four out to the right and two, and two up on it or whatever they were trying to do, trying to hit a high draw. In my world, a high draw. And there was this fence to the right of the range there and i said hey can i just step in just for a second here and ask you to do something i said aim it over that fence and hit a big high draw and they both looked at me like i had about three heads on me like this was the simplest way it could be broken down but he hit about three of the most beautiful high draws in a row because all he forgot about what he was doing he just let his body and his mind react he knows how to hit a high draw he's hit a million of them in his life but he didn't think about positions to produce it he just saw the fence and said i'm going to hit it over that and if to hit it over that, I better swing up on it, and I better swing a little more to the right. So it's, again, same thing. And, you know, I, I do a lot of opposites, just like in working with your guy, uh, Travis, uh, yesterday. Travis McEnroe, a great player, great kid. I mean, trying to offset some pad shaft lean in his, in his chipping. Well, great, whatever. Well, we can fix that with some technique. But I can also take him to uphill lies and chipping, tell him to hit, you know, put the ball forward so it changes the angle of attack and tell him to not take a divot on that uphill line. So if he if he doesn't take a divot there, he's doing the right things. He's not leaning the shaft as much as he can. Take him on a downhill line, well, that's going to be a lot easier for him. That's Those are the things I love to do, and I think that's it's an old-school approach. I'm still not that uh, – as I, as I tell Randy Smith, who's a great friend of mine, and I said, Randy, I want to be you when I grow up because <laughs> he's, he's, the, he's the ultimate old school. He's been around forever and has taught so many great players and just a – a great man, and he, and he gave me a cool comment. He said, "He, he was, you, you are the young old school guy, and that's that's who I am. And and I don't, I want to get better at technology. I, I will get better at technology, and I will, but that'll never be my passion. I am again hitting shots to fix technique. If you can go, I wish I would have played that way. I always had a fear of right, and I missed right, 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 right with my driver. Well, if I would have gone out there and hit a hundred snap hooks in a row that started right, I probably would have figured it out." Uh, you know, I love trust drills. I love when guys are struggling with maybe, you know, fading the golf ball or they overhook it. We're trying to learn to hit a fade, take them to a hole that's got trouble on the left, water on the left, and make them start it out over the water and cut it back. Vice versa to guys who want to draw it and draw it off the trouble. Stuff like that is transfers to the golf course, transfers to tournament play. Positions help, yes, don't get me wrong. But those feels, those trust drills, Something you can fall back on the 18th hole when you got to try to put put that ball in the fairway at TPC Sawgrass. That to me is something you can go back and build on. See, I think you would have been a great instructor. You are a great instructor. I think you'd have been really great as well way before technology existed because you'd be doing these same things. Correct. And I think instinctively coaches 
unfortunate swing coaches lost a lot of that because so much technology is there. You depend upon it and you forget about who you are, your eyes, your feel, your hands. I mean, I'll never, I'll never forget. I, I learned the ball flight loss from Hank Haney, Hank, who learned under John Jacobs, um, who may be the greatest, one of the greatest of all time. Uh, and so I, I, I can look if, if I can't look in the air and see what the ball is doing and can't determine what you're doing in your golf swing, then we have problems. And if that player can't determine it, we've got a bigger problem because my job is to help him own his swing and to own his feels and to understand how to self-correct because I can't be there with him every second of the day. And so it's, it's look, track man is a great tool. Swing catalyst is a great tool. There's a lot, a lot of great tools out there, but they can be a crutch. They can be a crutch, and I think too many just rely on numbers. Uh, and that's not, again, that's not to be negative toward that. They're, that's that's a wonderful thing, and I need to get better at it. Uh, but I know my style of player that works for me. And thankfully, there's a niche for that. There's enough players out there who see it kind of from my mentality. The Doc Redman, although he's a 23-year-old stud, he's a very feel-based guy. Adam Long, who's really progressed in his career, is a feel-based guy. Needs a little technology, but not but not too much. I mean, if we can't, you know, um, one of my goals, one of my things that I learned from Butch Harmon a while back was, was, was Josh, you got to learn, you, well, this is back as a college coach, Josh, you got to know when to say something and when to shut up. <laughs> and it, it's a brilliant statement that we all sometimes overcoach and we overtry. And, you know, a, a, an interesting story that really, really, you know, again, I'm learning every day, just as you're learning every day. And it shapes, shapes more and more of my beliefs, but. Adam Long, his first year on tour, uh, wins. Wins in the desert. Beats Phil Mickelson. I mean, this, this was just, you know, I, some people would call it a fluke. I wouldn't. He's got the trophy and he's got the check for $1.2 million. So whatever he did, he found a way to, to, to figure it out and to win that tournament. Well, we spent that entire rest of the year almost overworking, overcoaching, trying to be too perfect, trying to get too good to validate that win. And... So I'll never forget two stories. We're, we're on the range at, at Bay Hill, and it's cold, it's windy, it's blowing 20 off our left. The worst, worst, worst wind for a, for a right-handed golfer. And then he's hitting four irons, and he's trying to perfect hitting four irons because he's not very long, and he knows he's going to have a lot of them. And he's hitting it not great. And finally, I just said, stop. We're going to talk. We're not going to hit balls anymore. And I said, I want you to take a look, look up and down this range. There's 75 feet in this range. Half of them don't know who you are, and the other half of them, only know that you beat Phil Mickelson in the desert, but they darn sure don't know how many cuts you've missed in a row and they don't care. So we got to quit trying to prove to others what we're doing. Let's just get Adam long better. Let's get you better at golf. So we go throughout the end of that year and we sit down at Merido here in Dallas where, I, where I'm so thankful to be able to, to, to teach out of. And I know you've gotten to know Mr. Huddleston really well and nobody's done more for golf during, during this pandemic than him. Done a great it's, job bringing golf back. It's amazing. And so, we're sitting here in the off season and, and I said, all right, we're going to do something. We're going to write down one thing in each area of the game, your full swing, your short game, your wedging and your putting that we're going to work on for the entire year. And that's it. And we're not going to talk about anything else. Every time we work, we're going to try to make that a little bit better. And that's the only technical thing we're going to do. And the rest is going to be performance based coaching games, drills, fun, whatever, whatever. We got to get back to our roots. So we did that. He goes to finish, uh, finish second in Mexico. Early that year, finishes first and strokes gain tee to green, hits it great. Get to Sea Island. As you know, Sea Island can be blowing 30 and it's cold and windy. And very first day, shoots 73, hits a bunch of hooks, bunch of hooks, bunch of hooks. 
and that's his mistake. So we get on the range, hits his first shot, and goes, what do you see? Didn't say a word. Hits his second shot. He goes, what do you see? I didn't say a word. Finally hits his third shot, and he turned around and was a little bit more vocal this time and added a, a little adjective in there and then said, what do, you, what do you see? And I finally just simply looked at him and I said, Adam, what do you see? I said, why is your ball going left? We've talked about this. We know what causes left. What do we do to do that? He goes, well, I aim left. I aim a little bit more left. I get my path more left. I try to cut it off the trouble, cut it off the water. I said, so why did you need to ask me that question? <laughs> and the whole point of that story and where I learned and where I'm becoming a better, a better coach is that he wanted a golf lesson at that time. He didn't need a golf lesson. He needed just to be reminded of what he needs to do to correct that. He wanted a fix. He wanted a Band-Aid. He wanted a lesson. And I wasn't going to give him one. And that's hard to do as a coach because it's hard to shut up because you and me are both fixers. We, 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 want it, we care about our kids and our players so much that we'll do anything for them. We're, we're going to be the first to the range or we'll be the last to leave. And that's where your work is. It's where my work ethic has been. I'm never going to leave a kid left out alone if he wants to work. I don't care what time of day it is. And, and sometimes that's putting family, that's sometimes putting family behind or whatever it may be. But you know what? Those kids are our family. And that uh, was a great kind of lesson learned. And it's something that, I, that I've tried to apply to more and more players. It's sometimes, uh, as you can tell, I love to talk and I'm passionate about what I do. But sometimes less is way more. Well, I love that because it took, I would say, um, a little courage on your part to not say anything, to not try to fix it right there and a little maturity on his part to take that right. and do something with it. And I, I assume he played better this second round. Uh, he shot 65 and went out and finished about 18th in the tournament. So you always, you always look good when they play well, when they don't go play well, the message isn't hurt, hurt as well. But you know, there's just, look, I, I think being a college coach for 14 years uh, paved the way for me to do what I do now. I couldn't have done that without the experience of understanding, you know, my philosophy then in college, whether right or wrong, as I coached everybody different. We didn't have, we were a team off the course. We were a team at dinner. We were a team, but we were individuals. And if I get the best out of each individual, then the team's going to take care of itself. And I was very upfront in recruiting about that. I said, if, if you come into a place that that's going to be huge into, into team practice and all that stuff, no, I'm going to have individual practice. Yes, we do qualifying. Yes, we do workouts. Yes, we do some things as a team, but it was all individual. You want to work with me? Let's set up times, and that's what we're going to do because golf is an individual sport. I know, and I became a better coach in learning actually from Coach Holder. I'll never forget. I asked him at one point. Uh, we were at the Maxwell one time, and I, I always wanted to pick his brain because he was the he was the best. Why wouldn't you want to learn from him? And I asked him. I said, "Why why do you only walk with one player?" And I'm sure some of it you know, is also a little bit, a little bit of, Hey, this is a little less stress. When I walk with a great player, he's not going to make as many mistakes, but his answer to me was brilliant. He said, look, he said, I know my number one guy's going to count. Whether at that time, I think it was Casey Wittenberg. I, I know it, it, he's going to count. So if I can save him one shot or help him with a shot or two shots, that's going to add to our team score. I don't always know that our fifth guy's going to count. So, and you also, his message was, you find out who needs you and you find out who doesn't need you. Carter Newman, who was a catalyst for us winning two national championships, who played so great in, the, in our fifth spot. I didn't watch him hit a shot for two years other than from afar. 
He didn't want me around. And that was okay. He proved to me that he didn't really need me. And that for some strange reason, whether I made him nervous or whether he just tried too hard, he wanted to do his own thing. Henrik and Patrick wanted me around and they fought over who could have, who could have me caddy for him, but they wanted me around. And it had to, you have to swallow your pride, your ego sometimes to say, Hey, this, this kid doesn't need me. Or even now coaching on a professional level on a Wednesday, you know what? Sometimes I may need to let a, let a player go that day. They don't really need me that day. They may say they need me, but they don't because I've got to let them get, get them to trust in themselves and to not overthink and not overdo because let's face it at, at home, is, is practice on the road is preparation. So. Well, you know, you, you've brought up the college coaching versus professional coaching. I mean, there's some things that translate straight across for sure. But when you're playing, when you're coaching a professional, he's an individual, he's his own company, he's his own CEO, whatever. And you right. work for him. When you coach college golf, you've got 10 individuals that are all looking forward to the same goal. What do you right. think is the biggest difference between coaching in college and coaching the way you do now? It's both coaching, but what's the biggest difference if you just Ooh. picked one? Uh, I think, great question. I think, I think for one, um, in dealing with, co with college kids, especially when you earn their respect, a, a lot of them, if you, t if you tell them that sky's black, they'll believe it when you earn their respect and they know that you're going to go to bat for them. And so, therefore, there's – it's. I hate to use the word dictator, but it's a little bit more of you're running the show. Uh, now, having said that, I never tried to do that. I always – I prided myself in it being a two-way street. If you are in my respect as a player, you could always tell me, Coach, I don't like this or I don't like this feel, but you better say it in a respectful tone. And then we would work together to get there. I think on the professional level, for one, you're dealing with a team. You're dealing with an agent. Uh, you're dealing with a wife. <laughs> you're dealing with – uh, uh, manufacturers, you're dealing with a lot more entities. And so, you know, getting them off on their own is sometimes very hard uh, to do. But I think where the players like that style for me is that I don't come now. There's certain non negotiables that I believe in, whether it's a little bit in technique or it's whether it's a little bit in how to practice. But for the most part, everything else is negotiable. I better be, as a coach, be able to explain it four or five different ways before you can own the field. If I'm, if I'm giving you a chipping lessons, coach, I better be able to say, hey, we've got to feel that there's three or four different ways for you to feel it because I can't be in your body and mm -hmm. I can't know what you feel. So I have to be able to explain that enough ways to where you own your feel. Does that make sense? It does. Whereas I think in a college way, it's a little bit, you probably don't have, you should give them as many answers, but they're, 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 their skill set's just not as good professionals their skill sets are pretty darn good uh they don't have many weaknesses now thankfully i have a job because of this the niche that i found is that there is a great need for structure there's a great need for how to practice and there's a great need for de developing short games and scoring clubs that was done the same way we did in college kids love structure they may not act like they like it but they like it Larry Brown gave me gave me one of the greatest advice I've, I've ever given when, when he was at SMU and I was here. And we got to be really close and are still pretty close. And, and I asked him the same question you just asked me. I said, Coach, what's the difference between coaching in the college in the NBA? I said, man, it's got to be hard dealing with those NBA guys. This college guy's got to be got to be a, just a dream because they listen. But, they, you know, they're going to listen more. And he said, he said, not really. He said, honestly, 
you know, he's in his time around David Robinson, his time around Allen Iverson, his time around Michael Jordan. He said the best always want to be coached his time around Kobe on some Olympic teams. Those guys want to be coached. They want to be challenged. And that's where, you know, college players, we know we can challenge them because we kind of have authority over them. Right. On the PGA tour. It's, it's, a, it's technically I'm an employee. <laughs> technically. I don't like that term and they don't like that term either. Cause it's a, it's a working relationship. Uh, but they, that is, they want to be challenged that when we're doing a drill and, and, and you've got to make, you know, eight out of 10 putts from a certain distance, they don't want you to let them get the best. Don't want you to let them get in by if they only make seven, we're going to do the drill again. And that's where, you know, my niche with players is the practice, but it's also got to be a relationship. I don't do, I like to be needed. If that makes sense. Yes. I, I never, I never really worked well with very independent players. And that's, some of my own selfishness, some of my own just needs and desires. I love to be needed, you know, we, to be a great college coach, to be a great a coach in general, you're on call 24 seven. Many times that phone call, that phone rings at midnight and you don't want to answer it, but you have to, because that kid needs you at that moment, whether his girlfriend has kicked him to the curb or whether he failed the test or whether mom and dad aren't getting along or, or his golf game is not where he wants it or whatever it may be. That kid needs you because when we set those parents down in recruiting, we promised them we were going to take care of their kids first and foremost, teach them to be a man. Second of all, let's hope to get them to be the best golfer they can be. So that's what I love. And so even with my players now out on tour or whether it's only coach, maybe uh, 20 to 22 or three players total in my, in my whole lineup, whether from the PGA tour to, to juniors and every one of them, I, I have a relationship with, I don't work well with ones that, you know, Hey, I, I'll see you today, and then in two weeks later, I'll, I'll see you again. That's that's just not my style. It's a tech scene. It's, a, it's what got me in trouble in college. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it's a relationship, and I care so much about how they're doing and their well-being, and I, I feel guilty if I don't spend enough time with them. Well, I appreciate that, and, and I also appreciate the fact that although there are definite differences between coaching college and coaching professionals, it's still coaching when you come right down to it. Hundred percent. I've told. I think I've told you this. I know I've, I've told Mike Small. I mean, there, there are plenty of college coaches who could be doing the exact same thing I'm doing. I'm not any better. I've learned more. I've had some great experiences. But without, you know, without Mark Reppy taking a chance and his family taking a chance on me to kind of begin my career there, without Patrick Reed picking up the phone call and giving me that opportunity, one player leads to another, another player leads to another, and they see guys getting better and they want to be a part of it. And so. It is still coaching. I can promise you the best college coaches, and that doesn't mean even at the best of the Division One level, they could be doing the same things if given if given the opportunity. Because at the end of the day, it's a relationship and it's making players better. Period. I agree. I agree. However, it gets done. I agree. I think that uh, that the advice you've given me today, I've learned a lot. But those listening, especially young coaches, will understand from your mistakes and different things yes. you've learned. Uh, that coaching is coaching it, when you come yeah. right down to it. And, and, and most of coaching is that relationship, whether you like it or not, because yeah. the technical information or the things you know don't mean anything to a player if he doesn't have any respect for you or like you even. If they don't trust that you have their best interest in them and, and, they, and they think that this is just about a business and it's about a percentage of their income, well, it's never going to work. And I see too many that do it that way, and it's all about a business, and that's never, never going to be me. I, I – you know, for example, I, I don't. A lot of my tour guys, when they come to me and they, they, in the very beginning, they want to meet. I mean, 
I always tell them, look, until you're comfortable doing this, we're not going to have a business relationship. Until you feel like you're getting better, then we'll talk about the next step. But let me earn your trust. Let me prove that it's going to work. And then we'll, the rest will take care of itself. I'm not going to sit there with a contract in front of them, just like the first time when you meet with a recruit. I mean, yes, I did it to Bryson DeChambeau, but I don't imagine you've spent many time where the financial offer is the first thing you ever talk about. No, because in fact, <laughs> I want it to be the last thing. I want to build a relationship first. So. 100%. And so that's that's where I've gone. And, and, and it's um, I love it. And it's um, kind of paved my path. And I think it's, you know, kind of separated me from from some coaches that found my little niche. And it, it doesn't make me right or wrong but it's coaching to who I am most importantly. Well, I love that. And I love the fact that um, you seem to have as much energy for it now as you had when you started and when you started coaching initially. So normally in these podcasts, I have a speed round. I'm not going to have a speed round with you today, <laughs> but I am going to have one question that I want an answer to that I've started asking everybody. Right. Um, a lot of different people that I think is important because a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are junior golfers, college coaches, young coaches, parents, different people that kind of they want information, things that are going to help them for sure. And I have a question for you. And first of all, before I ask the question, I want to say thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks today. This has been real. I was very intrigued and I always wondered why your players got so much um, out of their talent. Now I, I, I see a little more evidence as to why. It's great. Thank you. But, well, sometimes um, we, you have to put their needs ahead of yours, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, the question I have for you is, what's your best advice for junior golfers who want to play college golf and then beyond want to play professional golf? I mean, you don't have to narrow it down to one thing, but just in general, your best advice for young players. You know, when I've helped Mark Rappier or, or, or Ryan Greider or the Cootie brothers or whatever, you know, the, the things that I'm hopefully teaching them the structured practice, the spending time in equal areas, doing things that make you uncomfortable in practice. We got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. It's easy to go to the range and hit balls for an hour, go putt for a few minutes with your buddies and go to the tee. That's not what Jordan Spieth did. That's not what Patrick Reed did. That's not what the best do. They find a way to get uncomfortable. They find a way to get on their own and they're not afraid to say no sometimes. They're not afraid to say, hey, this is what's best for me. So getting with that plan, getting with that structure earlier on and understanding, again, I, I hear players say this all the time. Well, coach, I'm working hard and I'm not getting better. I don't care how hard you work. Clearly, you're not doing the things that are best for you. I want you to work effectively. Every day at practice, I challenge my players. I want them to leave mentally tired. I don't want them to be physically tired. I want them in that two to three to four to eight, whatever the hours may be, that they feel like they've checked all the boxes. They've, they've you know, in my syllabus that I give them, that they've done everything that they go, dang, I'm, I'm tired because I really had to work today. And I got, but I got better today. And sometimes, uh, and sometimes it's okay to fail in these drills. Sometimes it's okay to fail. And I think that's where, uh, you know, we can beat ourselves in the ground too much by trying to be too perfect. But, uh, the bottom line is if they can get on some of these practice ideas that I have and others have about structured practice and about spending equal time in all areas, they will be so far ahead of the curve once they get to college golf and once they you know, come play for you and all of a sudden, wow, you're trying to teach them these same things that I am. And they've, they've been hearing this for three or four years because we both know in college when these kids get to us, for the most part, we spend a year to maybe two years 
getting them to really kind of learn the right things. And if we, they come in there two years ahead of the game, watch out. And yeah, so that, that, that's, that's great advice right there. Very good and, advice. And that's, I just think it's, it, obviously it's cliches, it's short game, it's blah, it's all that, but it's just the truth. I mean, how, 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 you know, unless no matter how good you get and how far you can hit it, Adam Long, who hits it 293 off the tee versus Dustin Johnson, who may hit it 310. Adam Long has a fair fight from 130 yards and in. There is nothing he can't do that Dustin can do better than him. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, it does. He'll, ne- he'll never hit it as far as Dustin Johnson, unless he goes to Bryson Way and gains 50 pounds and does whatever, but that's not going to be him. That's only for certain people. So that is the thing that you, no matter how big, how strong, how little you are, you can have a fair fight to be every bit as good as the best junior player in the country, the best college player, the best professional in the, wor- in the world from 120 yards and in. You can't overdo that. That's great. Great advice. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on today. Better Than I Found It podcast. You've been very, very informative, intuitive, insightful, and I appreciate everything you had to say today. It was great. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Keep uh, doing all your great work with all your players. and happy to help them anytime and always pull it for you. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Same to you. Take care. Thanks, Thanks Josh. Thanks. Thanks, Coach. Bye-bye. Bye.